0: What do you think of when you hear the words Springfield, Illinois? If you ever heard of Springfield, your mind would typically go straight to it being the capital of the state of Illinois or to it being the home of the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. It's the town that Lincoln called home, where he lived and raised his children, where he lived when he was elected president, and where he was brought back to be laid to rest after his assassination. Do you think of other events such as the 1908 Springfield Race Riot, which helped lead to the founding of the NAACP, or the numerous political scandals tied to a number of Illinois governors? Or perhaps more recently when Barack Obama announced his candidacy for the presidency on the steps of the old state capitol on that cold February day in 2007. Do you think of some of the famous athletes to call Springfield home? Bob Trumpy, Dave Robish, Andre Iguodala? Growing up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I knew two things about Springfield. It was the capital of Illinois, and it was the hometown of Ed Horton and Kevin Gamble, two of my favorite Iowa Hawkeye basketball players when I was growing up. There's a great deal of history tied to this amazing city, and the purpose of this podcast is to learn more about the people and events that often come to mind when thinking of Springfield, but to also dig a little deeper and learn more about some of the not-so-well-known figures and events that in many ways are just as interesting, if not more. My name is Jeff Lightfoot, and I'm a social studies teacher at Springfield High School. Springfield High sits less than a mile from the state capitol building in downtown Springfield. It's so close that one story says in the late 1970s, a group of teachers who were having lunch on the roof were told they needed to go back inside by the United States Secret Service since they had a clear view of the entrance of the Capitol building that President Gerald Ford would be visiting later that day. I've been on the staff at Springfield High since 1999, and I've been the Social Studies Department Chair since 2009. Now, since I've been at Springfield High, and more importantly since the retirement of Sherry Pullman, a longtime teacher and assistant principal, I've become the person people most often come to with questions about the history of the building and the people who have passed through it. Sometimes I know the answer and sometimes I have to do a little research. At times I come across things that I think to myself, people would probably love hearing this story. And if I ever had the courage to do a podcast, this would be a great topic. So here we go. I'm sitting here in Solon Studios on the third floor of Springfield High School. We're going to call this podcast Capital History... And together, we're going to learn more about some of the people and events that have shaped Springfield, Illinois' history. Once again, my name is Jeff Lightfoot, and you're listening to Capital History, a podcast about the history of Springfield, Illinois. This is Episode 1, Medal of Honor. Now, when you think of the Medal of Honor, you might think of some of the most well-known recipients of the award. People like Audie Murphy, one of the most decorated soldiers in U.S. history, having been awarded every military combat award possible as a member of the United States Army. Teddy Roosevelt for his actions during the Battle of San Juan Hill. He's also the only president to ever receive the award. Mary Edwards Walker, the only female recipient who earned the Medal of Honor for her work caring for the sick and wounded during the Civil War, whose citation was actually rescinded in 1919 because she was not a member of the military, but was restored in 1977 by President Jimmy Carter. You might think of a war movie you've seen based on or partially based on the actions that led to the awarding of the Medal of Honor, like Hacksaw Ridge and Desmond Doss, or Black Hawk Down and Randall Shugart and Gary Gordon. Now, three people from the city of Springfield have been awarded the Medal of Honor. Edwin John McLaren for his actions at Bear Paw Mountain in 1877, is perhaps the most well-known and maybe the only one you've actually heard of. In a future episode... I might try to tell the story of the McLernan family and their influence on the city of Springfield, which is significant. So I will wait to tell the story of Edwin John McClernand then. What I want to do in this episode is tell the stories of John Hugh Catherwood and Arthur Harrison Wilson, who were both awarded the Medal of Honor for actions during what was called the Moro Rebellion in the Philippines in the years following the Spanish-American War. This episode will start with a brief history of the Moro Rebellion and the events leading to it, We'll then get into the specific missions and actions that resulted in both Catherwood and Wilson receiving the award, and then I'll get into what happened to them in the years after, up until their deaths. I hope you enjoy this inaugural episode of Capital History. Now before I talk about the Moro Rebellion and the specific actions of both Catherwood and Wilson, I would like to talk about the Medal of Honor itself. According to the Congressional Medal of Honor Society, on December 9, 1861, Iowa Senator James Grimes, who was chairman on the Committee of Naval Affairs, submitted Senate Bill 82 during the second session of the 37th Congress. It was titled, quote, Act to Further Promote the Efficiency of the Navy, end quote. The bill included a provision for 200 Medals of Honor to be given to petty officers, seamen, landsmen, and Marines who had distinguished themselves during the Civil War. On December 21st, the bill was passed and signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln. On February 15th, 1862, Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson, the chairman of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs and the Militia, and later vice president under Ulysses S. Grant, introduced a resolution for the Medal of Honor for the Army. This resolution was approved by Congress and signed into law by President Lincoln again on July 12th, 1862. It was titled, quote, A Resolution to Provide for the Presentation of Medals of Honor to the Enlisted Men of the Army and Volunteer Forces who have distinguished or may distinguish themselves In battled during the present rebellion, end quote. On March 3, 1863, Congress made the Medal of Honor a permanent decoration and authorized it to all members, including commissioned officers of the United States military. The first U.S. Army soldiers to receive the medal were six members of a Union raiding party who crossed into Confederate territory to destroy bridges and river tracks between Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Atlanta, Georgia in 1863. In the over 160 years of its existence, over 3,500 men and one woman, Mary E. Walker, who we talked about earlier, have been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. 19 recipients have received the award twice, and as of 2003, 65 of the recipients are still alive. The most recent recipient is Sergeant First Class Christopher Solis for his actions in Afghanistan in July, 2018. Once again, three people from the city of Springfield have been awarded the Medal of Honor, Edward John McLernan, John Hugh Catherwood, and Arthur Wilson. In the late 1800s, the United States was entering a period known as imperialism, along with many of the countries of Western Europe. The United States wanted access to markets in Asia following the industrial boom of the post-Civil War period. This meant gaining colonial possessions in the Pacific to use as what Alfred Thayer Mahan called the coaling stations in his book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. These possessions were going to be used by our Navy to refuel with coal on their way to protect American economic interests in Asia. The first of these territories that we gained control of was Hawaii, which was annexed in 1898. That same year, the Spanish-American War began, which started over a conflict in the Caribbean involving Spanish colonial actions in Cuba. There had been rebellion against Spanish rule by Cuban rebels who were known as insurrectos. Stories circulated in the American press about atrocities committed by the Spanish against the Cuban people. American businessmen were also alarmed by the fact that the Insurrectos had destroyed a number of profitable sugarcane fields in Cuba. The U.S. declared war shortly after the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, which was promptly blamed on Spain, despite evidence that it had been due to problems on board the ship itself. The war ended after about eight months in December of 1898, with the United States gaining control of the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico. The following year, a group of Filipinos, led by a man named Emilio Aguinaldo, declared the Philippines to be independent. Aguinaldo had supported the United States during the war but thought or hoped that the United States would leave after the Spanish were defeated. What followed is known as the Filipino Insurrection. This was mostly a guerrilla war against the United States that, according to how it's taught in history classes, ended in March of 1901 with the capture of Aguinaldo. The insurrection only really ended in the northern islands, however, and continued in the southern portion. A group called the Moros lived in the southern portion of the Philippine archipelago and continued fighting. Today, the Moro people comprise roughly 5% of the population of the Philippines. These are a group of Muslim Filipinos who actually maintained their culture and their Muslim faith during Spanish colonial period, where much of the rest of the Philippines was converted to Catholicism. Moro was a Spanish term, first used to refer to the Muslims who ruled the southern half of Spain from 711 to 1492. And the United States had avoided conflict with the Moros due to what was called the Kieran bates Treaty of 1899 provisions of which included mutual respect for the United States and the Sultanate of Sulu, an area in the southern portion of the Philippines, moral autonomy, non-interference with the moral religion and customs, a pledge the United States would not sell the island of Jolo or any other island in the Sulu archipelago to any foreign nation without the consent of the sultan. Also, the sultan himself and what were called as adatas or tribal chiefs, were to receive monthly payments in return for flying the American flag and for allowing the U.S. the right to occupy lands in the islands. And lastly, a recognition of U.S. sovereignty over Sulu and its dependencies. Well, the Moro translation did not include the word sovereignty, and this becomes a big issue. In 1903, the United States created the Moro province as a new area to be governed and administered by the United States military separate from the northern region of the Philippines. Well, the Kieran bates Treaty was unilaterally set aside by the United States the following year in 1904. When that happened, a U.S. military force was sent to control the area. Well, the Morals were divided over American rule, which allowed the United States to get help from friendly moral groups against those who opposed U.S. actions in the area. The actions of those moral who opposed the U.S. rule was often brutally suppressed. You had a situation where rifles and machine guns and artillery and explosives were used against those using blades, knives, and spears. This seemed, in many ways, to be very similar to U.S. relations at the time with Native Americans and the decades prior. When actions often seemed very one-sided, the Native American opposition to U.S. expansion was brutally suppressed as well. This also was the first real encounter the United States Army had with an armed force of Muslims, not the first seen by the United States military itself, with that coming a century before when the United States Navy and the newly created Marines faced off against the Barbary Pirates under President Thomas Jefferson. Now, you heard me right. Pirates. Before I talk about the actions that led both Catherwood and Wilson to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, I would like to talk a little bit about the background of each man. John Hugh Catherwood was born in Springfield, Illinois on August 7, 1888. He was the son of John Hugh Catherwood Sr. and Elizabeth Catherwood. They actually lived in a house on West Washington Street that would have been located right next to where I'm sitting in the current location of Springfield High School. Springfield High School would not be built for another 10 years after he actually received his Medal of Honor, however. Catherwood enlisted in the Navy on either August 14th or August 15th of 1908, according to the Illinois State Register. He joined on the same day of the Springfield Race Riot, but it did not specify if it was the first or second day of that event. And since he was under 21 years of age, his mother had to sign off on his enlistment. His brother, Tom, also joined, and their mother had to sign for him as well. The Illinois State Register mentions how it might have seemed strange to some that these two young men from the middle of the country would want to join the Navy, but it had long been their wish. Now, we do know quite a bit more about the life and family history of Arthur Harrison Wilson. He was born in 1879 and died in 1953. He was a son of Bluford Wilson and Alice Wilson. He actually had two sisters, Jesse and Lucy, and a brother named Bluford, who died unexpectedly while attending West Point. Now, Arthur Harrison Wilson came from a long line of distinguished family members. His great-great-grandfather was a Revolutionary War veteran from Virginia. His great-grandfather, Alexander Wilson, was Speaker of the House for the State of Illinois. His grandfather was a veteran of the War of 1812. And his father, Blueford Wilson, according to Findagrave.com, enlisted in the Union Army during the Civil War in 1862 and participated in the Vicksburg Campaign, ending the war as a brevet major. He went on to study law, and by the age of 33... He had been named U.S. District Attorney by President Grant, likely due to their connections from the Vicksburg Campaign. Along with his brother, General James Harrison Wilson, he founded the Cairo and Vincennes Railroad. Luford Wilson eventually moved to Springfield, Illinois in 1876 and began practicing law. Now, according to the Illinois State Register, Arthur Harrison Wilson, was, in August of 1898, during his third year at Springfield High School, received an appointment to West Point from Congressman James A. Connolly. This was just before his 17th birthday and after he had received an earlier appointment but had actually failed the first entrance exam. What we know of his life at West Point was largely comes from a West Point memorial page and an account of a friend named Stanley Koch. While at West Point, Wilson reportedly excelled as an athlete, participating in high jump, wrestling, pole vault, for which he won a West Point championship in 1904, and polo. He took second place in a contest that determined the best all-around athlete at West Point in 1903. He was very skilled on horseback and was on the cadet polo team, which won a junior polo championship and defeated a team from India and a team of British officers on their home field. Wilson was also very good, reportedly, with a revolver. Supposedly, he lived on the first floor of a double set of quarters, and these quarters had a large, long hallway on the first floor with a large wooden box at the end, and he and another cadet would use that box for target practice. Let's imagine this for a second. Target practice in a dorm hallway. My daughter's a freshman in college right now, and I struggle to think of, you know, that actually being part of her reality. Now, allegedly, there was another officer living on the second floor with his wife. I think, But it never seemed to bother them too much from most accounts. I'm just trying to imagine, again, living in a dorm, and you have to always peek out to make sure the guys in the hallways aren't shooting down the length of the hallway before you exit. Now, Wilson was supposed to graduate in 1903, but according to Koch's account, Wilson was, quote, not the most studious type, end quote, and was turned back and graduated with the class of 1904. Now, he loved riding horses and was reportedly very good at it, so he hoped to get an assignment to the Cavalry Corps, but his class rank led him to be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the infantry upon graduation. A little later on, in June of 1907, in Washington, D.C., he married Helen de Clifford Brooks. The couple came back to Springfield soon after, Arthur's parents held a reception and a dance at the Illinois or Country Club in Springfield to celebrate their marriage. Now that we know a bit more about each of these men, I'd like to talk in detail about the missions that each were on and the actions that each took that earned them the Congressional Medal of Honor. John Catherwood was serving as an ordinary seaman aboard the USS Pampanga. This is a schooner-rigged gunboat, meaning it had sails and had been captured by the U.S. Army in Manila Bay during the Spanish-American War. Now, an ordinary seaman is a rank below an able seaman, and ordinary seaman's duties include standing watch while on port or at sea and performing routine deck department maintenance tasks such as cleaning, painting, and preserving the ship. The Pampanga was sent to the island of Basilan in the Philippine Islands to help capture a famous Moro outlaw named Dalto Lumlung, who had been operating against the United States military in the year in the area for roughly a decade. The following is an account from the Illinois State Journal, published on May 1, 1912. In an effort to find Lemlung, Catherwood went ashore as part of a scouting party led by Ensign Charles Hovey. On September 24, 1911, Hovey took eight men, including Catherwood, and two local moral guides on a patrol, working their way through long, wet grass while climbing over rocks and through a dark section of jungle, when roughly four miles from camp, the party came across an open area with a number of small huts. Hovey and the two native Moro guides left the remaining five men on the trail leading to the opening. After inspecting the surrounding area, Hovey ordered two men to guard one path in the area to the northeast and another to guard the path to the south. He took the other two men, one of which was Catherwood, toward the huts to investigate further. Approximately five yards from the entrance, the Moro who had been waiting inside attacked. Shots came from inside the hut and from the tall, surrounding grass area. The primary weapons used were spears with poison tips and large bolo knives common to the area. The Illinois State Journal article said there had been 10 moral warriors for every Navy man involved. Ensign Hovey was killed almost immediately, having been stabbed repeatedly by those emerging from the hut. One of his guides was the next to fall, and then Catherwood went down trying to protect Ensign Hovey. Hovey died quickly after trying what he could do to rally his men. Catherwood, again being attacked next, was stabbed repeatedly but continued to fight, reportedly killing seven Moro warriors. Those that survived used rifles and revolvers against their attackers and rallied around the body of Ensign Hovey. Reinforcements arrived and Catherwood was carried to a field hospital where his wounds were tended to. A few days later, the remaining group of 40 Moros who had attacked Hovey and his men were, quote, exterminated. Catherwood reportedly suffered somewhere between 9 and 18 wounds, depending on the account, including having his hands almost severed from his body. According to an article in the Illinois State Register, he had the following wounds. A cut from a bolo knife from shoulder to the base of a shoulder blade. A hand almost cut in two from two cuts from a bolo knife. His left arm was almost severed by a cut from a bolo knife. And spear wounds in his hip left side below the right knee and through his right hand. He was moved to a hospital in Manoa and in December was finally able to send a message to his mother letting her know he was recovering and, quote, hoped soon to be about as good as usual. End quote. In February, he was moved and spent nine months in a Marine hospital in San Francisco. His wounds left him unable to continue service in the Navy, and he was honorably discharged after being given $100 with a life pension. For his actions, John Catherwood was officially awarded the Medal of Honor in January of 1912. The citation reads quote, While attached to the USS Pampang, Catherwood was one of a shore party moving in to capture the outlaw Lemlong on the island of Basilan in the Philippines on the morning of 24 September 1911. Advancing with the scout party to reconnoiter a group of Nippa huts close to the trail, Catherwood unhesitatingly entered the open area before the huts, where his party was suddenly taken under point-blank fire and charged by approximately 20 enemy Moros coming from inside the native huts and from other concealed positions. Struck down almost immediately by the outlaw's deadly fire, Catherwood, although unable to rise, rallied to the defense of his leader and fought desperately to beat off the hostile attack. By his valiant effort under fire and in the face of great odds, Catherwood contributed materially towards the destruction and rout of enemy property. End quote. Next, we're going to discuss the mission of Arthur Harrison Wilson. Now, I'm going to have to give you a little background here. The mission itself was aimed at taking down a man known as Jakiri. We can find a little bit of information about Jakiri's background from the International Journal of Maritime History. Little is in fact known about his background in life before he rose to prominence as a pirate and an outlaw. All we really know from before this period is that he had been a follower of the Sultan of Sulu, a man named Jamalul Karam II, working as one of his servants. Now the first incident that is confirmed to have been tied to Jakiri was in November of 1907, when he led an attack on a vinta, which is a small double outrigger sailing canoe. This was off the shore of a town called Lumapit in the island of Jolo in the southern part of the Philippines. The Vinta was owned by a Chinese trader who, along with two crew members, was killed. A third crew member was able to escape by jumping into the water and swimming to shore and living to tell the story. Jakiri and his men stole the cargo, which was primarily cloth worth about $600. Jakiri and his men eventually went on to be responsible for the murder of at least 40 people and a series of raids on ships, camps, and settlements throughout the southern coast of the Philippines. Now we come to Wilson's mission. On the first months of 1909, Jakiri and his followers had been pursued by the United States Army and local authorities in the area. In early July, again in 1909, Jakiri and at least seven followers, including two women and one child, took refuge in a cave near Pachin on the island of Jolo. This is where they meant to make their final stand. They had somewhere around six rifles, a shotgun, and an unknown amount of ammunition. Now, Captain George Bynum of the 6th Cavalry arrived to take charge of the force surrounding the cave. He flew a white flag and called on Ja'Kiri to surrender. Ja'Kiri refused and also refused safe passage for the women and the child. Fifty men kept guard on the cave for two days, making sure that he could not escape. Now, what happened next we primarily have from the account of a soldier who witnessed the events. This account was published in Illinois State Journal or the Illinois State Register. This is also combined with some details from an article in The Columbian, which was published in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania in August of 1909. On the island of Pachin was an extinct volcano, with the crater at the top being about 1,000 yards across, with walls about 600 feet high. The cave and as men and these two women and the child were actually holed up in, was about 200 feet below the inside of the top crater, on a large ledge. An unnamed soldier, giving the account, Had been ordered to bring a large gun up from the ship and set it about 300 feet from the cave opening. This took 19 men about two hours to do when it was raining the entire time. Once it was in position, it still took a while. They couldn't fire because U.S. troops near the entrance were in the way and wouldn't move. Now the soldier went down to see what was happening, and Captain Bynum told them to move the gun closer since he didn't think it would be effective from that distance. Rather than being 300 feet away, they ended up about 20 feet in front of the cave entrance, and now he was told to wait until morning his orders to fire. In the middle of the night, Jakiri and his men started firing out from inside the cave. Not outside the cave, but out of the cave. And Bynum ordered an advance with a couple of machine guns from the ship. Forty men advanced to right near the opening of the two entrances to the cave. On the left side, Jakiri's followers started firing again at the approaching troops. They seemed to be running out of ammo. At least that's what people thought. That's when a spear came flying out and actually hit a soldier. The man jumped out soon after with his barong, which is a large bullet knife with a blade about 22 inches long, and he was shot dead soon after. Arthur Harrison Wilson, from Springfield, was one of the first soldiers outside of the right entrance, having led his men through gunfire to this position. This is the action for which he received the Medal of Honor. what seemed most likely a suicide charge, Ja'Kiri and his men burst out of the cave opening while they were swinging with the barongs. Those who witnessed this moment said it made a horrific sight. The scene was so wild and nightmarish that U.S. troops talked about it for days afterwards. Now, Jakiri himself attacked Wilson, who was again on the right outside the cave before Wilson could even raise his weapon. As a result of the attack, Wilson had a number of muscles in his neck severed. As Jakiri had Wilson by the hair and was preparing to take another swing and attempt to behead Wilson, just like something you would see in an action movie, Jakiri was shot and killed by Lieutenant Joseph A. Baer. The whole incident lasted about 10 seconds and ended with Ja'Kiri and all of his men dead. Two Americans had died in this suicide attempt, if we can call it that, and 22 were wounded, two of whom later died. Some of those who were wounded were reportedly wounded by friendly fire and the craziness of the situation. The US troops gathered up all of Ja'Kiri's weapons and the remaining ammunition, with all the soldiers wanting a barong as a souvenir, just to remember this moment by, I suppose. Captain Abina made the decision to give one barong to each of the injured soldiers. Uh, again, according to the Journal of Maritime History, in the months after Jekiri's death, the rest of his band was rounded up and put on trial. On November 1st, 1909, 40 of his followers were sentenced to anywhere from six months to life in prison. Now, this period saw the death of Jekiri but not end pirate attacks in the area, but it was the last we saw on the scale that Jekiri had carried out. For his actions that day, Arthur Harrison Wilson received the Congressional Medal of Honor. On July 4th, 1909 was the date of the attack on the cave and he actually received his medal of honor citation his medal of honor award From President William Howard Taft himself in a ceremony at the White House on November 23rd 1912 the citation from the Congressional Medal of Honor Society webpage reads quote well an action against hostile morals when it being necessary to secure a mountain gun in position by ropes and tackle voluntarily and with the assistance of enlisted men carried the rope forward and fastened it, being all the time under a heavy fire of enemy at short range. Now, this would have been that moment right before Jakiri charged with his men. And this is the action that won Arthur Harrison Wilson his Medal of Honor. Next, we can talk about both Catherwood and Wilson and what happened to them after the war. Uh, their stories are both very interesting and very different at the same time. After leaving the Navy, John Catherwood's injuries left a lasting impact on his life. According to an article in the Illinois State Register from 1912, Catherwood came home, took the civil service exam, scoring a high average, and for a time worked as an apprentice fish culturist for the U.S. Hatcheries in Whiteville, Virginia. Eventually, though, he returned to Springfield and worked as a night watchman for the Springfield Fire Department at Eddington Houses 1 and 3. Later, he worked at the Southern Illinois Penitentiary in Chester, Illinois, which is now known as the Menard Correctional Center. He married Dolly Arabelle Hathaway, and they had three children, a daughter Bonnie, and sons John Jr. and Alfred. Alfred went by the name Stan. Both sons joined the United States Navy following their father. There's actually a picture in the Illinois State Journal of Alfred signing his recruitment application at a local recruiting office in 1942 during World War II, with his mother Dolly standing behind him. John Catherwood died in 1930 at the age of 42 in Chester, Illinois. According to a Nashville Journal article from Thursday, November 27, 1930, John Catherwood died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. According to the article, he was expecting to go to Springfield with his family to look for work. This was during the early stages of the Great Depression. That morning, before they left, his wife, Dahlia, heard a gunshot in the garage and, when going out to investigate, discovered his body. She had his remains brought back to Springfield to be buried. His funeral was held on November 20th, 1930 at Bish and Sons Funeral Home and was officiated by Reverend Laverne Taylor. Again, this was in the midst of the Great Depression and his family had no money for a cemetery plot. His burial was, burial was not a formal military burial with honors, as one would expect for every veteran in the United States military, especially one who had been awarded the Medal of Honor. Despite the fact that other Spanish-American war veterans were in charge of his burial, according to an article in the Illinois State Journal Register, there was no military honor guard, no 21-gun salute, and no playing of taps. This is a striking part of any funeral. I know when my father passed away, uh, he had been a veteran. He was also a police officer. And we had members of the Cedar Rapids Police Department, uh, where I'm from in Cedar Rapids, standing attention during his visitation. He was given military honors during the ceremony itself with members of local veterans of foreign wars on hand to help pay honor for his service. But again, due to the financial circumstances of his family at this moment during the Great Depression, at the funeral of John Catherwood, there was no honor guard no 21-gun salute, and no one playing taps, which is typically played at the funeral of every person who served in the U.S. military. He was buried near his parents in a plot reportedly given to his wife by a family friend. Now, fast forward a little bit. In January of 1944, John Catherwood's daughter, Bonnie, then a sophomore at Lanfear High School in Springfield, tra- traveled to Seneca, Illinois, to help launch the LST, or Landy Ship Tank, 519. This type of ship was designed to carry tanks, construction equipment, and other vehicles ashore during amphibious landing operations. LST-519 was named in honor of her father. After the ship was launched, Bonnie was taken aboard the ship for a tour and later shown around the shipyards to see how the ships were made. Bonnie was also honored by the shipbuilders with a luncheon, where she was presented with a bouquet of roses and a dress pin set with three diamonds. LST-519, again named after John Catherwood participated in the D-Day invasions in Normandy, making sweeps along the shore looking for underwater mines by dragging chains that would detonate them without harm coming to the Allied landing ships. After World War II, the boat was used to dump ammunition into the ocean and later, atomic waste. This was done with virtually no protection for the crew, and the waste they dumped was in unprotected barrels, and they did this with about 300 barrels at a time. A significant number of its former crew got sick later in life as a result of exposure to this radioactive waste. The practice continued until around 1960. Before this, though, it had been rechristened the USS Calhoun County in 1955. The boat was decommissioned in June of 1963. Now again, let's fast forward to 1987. On June 12, 1987, 44 recipients of the Medal of Honor from across the United States were honored in Springfield, Illinois. They arrived at Capitol Airport at 1030 a.m. And after a brief welcoming ceremony, they were taken to Lincoln's tomb for a ceremony. This held significance to the Medal of Honor recipients due to the fact that it was President Lincoln who had signed into law the act establishing the honor back during the Civil War. According to an article in the SGR, members of the John Catherwood family, including his children, were in attendance at the ceremony. Someone had told the Catherwoods that their father was entitled to a special Medal of Honor headstone trimmed in gold leaf. John's son Stan then replied, quote, I'm sure wish my father could be buried over at Camp Butler, end quote camp butler lies just outside of springfield near riverton illinois it began as a training ground and later was used as a prisoner of war camp during the civil war today it's a national cemetery where all members of the military who have met a minimum active duty service requirement and were honorably discharged or eligible for burial general john johnson at the time the director of the illinois department of veterans affairs told stan to come and see him the following monday morning according to stan's wife wilma Richard Kazmirsky of the Veterans Affairs Office helped with the process and Stan's wish was granted. John Catherwood was again buried at this time alongside his brother, Tom, and his firstborn son, John Jr., both of whom were veterans of the United States Navy on July 22, 1987 at Camp Butler Cemetery. It had been 76 years after the actions on the island of Basilan in the Philippines and over 100 people attended the ceremony, which included an honor guard, Navy rifle squad that fired six rifles, three volley salute, and two buglers playing taps. To this day, John Catherwood remains the only Medal of Honor recipient buried at Camp Butler. As I mentioned earlier, Arthur Harrison Wilson was married to his wife Helen in 1907. They had four kids together. They had a daughter named Anne and sons named Bluford, after his father, Arthur and Henry. Bluford died when he was only eight months old. Arthur actually graduated from West Point just like his father in 1937. While there, he was a star polo player, again, just like his father. He served during World War II in the Philippines, in the Battles of Leyte Gulf, and in Manila, and he earned a silver star and is buried buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Henry, the youngest son, graduated from West Point a year after his brother in 1938. He excelled in polo as well, served in World War II in the Eighth Air Force as a P-17 pilot, and he's also buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Wilson served 40 years in the United States Army Infantry and Cavalry and eventually became commander of a military base at Fort Brown, Texas. Fort Brown was decommissioned in 1946 and turned over to the Army Corps of Engineers. It was later acquired by the city of Brownsville, Texas, and is the site of Texas's southernmost community college. Wilson retired as a colonel in 1942. And Eleven years after retiring, in 1953, Wilson died in Port Isabel, Texas, at the age of 72 of cardiac failure while duck hunting. He is buried at Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield. And there you have the stories of John Hugh Catherwood and Arthur Harrison Wilson, who along with Edwin John McLernan are the only three people to have lived in the city of Springfield who were recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. I hope you enjoyed learning about the lives and heroics of these men and how they added to the story that is the rich history of Springfield, Illinois. Again, some future podcast topics might include the McLernan family and the lives that they led not only Edwin John McClernon, but also his father, who was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln and their influence on the city of Springfield. Other topics that potentially could be on the horizon are a fire that occurred in the basement of Springfield High School in March of 1932 that led to the death of three people, including two members of the fire department, as well as the story of Scott Sommerhoff, who was a graduate of Springfield High School in the 1970s and was one of the 243 US Marines killed in the barracks bombing in Beirut in 1983. Remember though, this is episode one, and I'm kind of working out the kinks. This is also the first podcast that I've ever done, and I'm learning among other things that it's very helpful to have a, well, proofread script. And hoping in the future, not only with that script, to invite maybe some guests on the podcast as well. So once again, this is Capital History Podcast. My name is Jeff Lightfoot. Thank you for joining in.